Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. I am a Patreon supporter for Creative Control. I discovered Creative Control some years ago, I think maybe while looking for interviews with Tommy Stinson of The Replacements, and uh, I stumbled across this conversation that Vish had with Tommy Stinson that was really insightful. Vish held his own. I think Tommy can be a little bit of a difficult interview at times, and it went really well, and it really uh, got into some areas that I wasn't expecting, and I thought, gosh, I have to listen to more of this guy and his podcast. Sometimes I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or musicians that uh, Vish will have on the show, but I always appreciate their creative process a little bit more. And uh, more times than not, though, it does lead me to uh, finding a new musical artist that I'm interested in or to think a little bit differently about maybe some artists whose work I've overlooked. So, you know, go ahead, and if you've been waiting at all to support Vish and Creative Control, now is probably the best time to do it. I know as a public radio employee here in Kansas, listener-supported broadcasting, whether it's podcasts or radio itself, really isn't a thing of the past. It's actually very much a thing of both the present and the future. So, yay Vish, yay Creative Control. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, Please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Jeff Tweedy is a brilliantly talented songwriter, producer, author, multi-instrumentalist, and singer based in Chicago, Illinois. Shortly after the dissolution of his other influential band, Uncle Tupelo, Tweedy formed Wilco in 1994, 
leading that band through a remarkable trajectory of Grammy-winning and innovatively idiosyncratic rock, folk, and country music sounds, compellingly haunting lyricism, and one of the greatest live music shows in history. Wilco's 12th album is a double LP called Cruel Country, which was released on May 27, 2022, by their own DBPM label, and it prompted Jeff and I to reconnect to have a lovely and in-depth conversation about Wilco's Solid Sound Music Festival, arts curation, and other cultural endeavors, the pros and cons of contributing to a communicative exchange of ideas and feelings in a heightened age of opinion sharing, criticism, indifference, and negative bias, when certain people die, and death generally, abstractions and specific genre signifiers, whether fashionability still exists, his book, How to Write One Song, and also the specific B-52 song, The Love Shack, The State and Stasis of the United States of America, the 11 LP anniversary box set for the 2002 Wilco album Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, other future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control with additional support from Blackbird Music, a well-stocked record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and friendly staff who will happily help you fulfill whatever orders you need. Hey, what if you're like, I want the new Wilco album, Cruel Country, or maybe I want other Wilco albums. Just go to blackbird.ca and see if they can't help you out with that. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 692 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Good. How are you doing, Vish? I'm well. It's nice to speak with you again. Uh, first of all, where in the world are you today? I'm in uh, Michigan, a small place over in Michigan, about an hour and a half away from Chicago. Oh, nice. Are you just relaxing, are you? Yeah, like just, just got home from uh, Solid Sound Festival and just getting a little hiking in, trying to get a little, I don't know, I think it's traveling i always feel a little bit safer separating myself from my family for a few days just to make sure that i don't get my wife sick because she's uh my maybe a little bit immunocompromised so just kind of right doing a little little quick quarantine absolutely yeah i know that makes sense how your family's well otherwise everyone's yep. good yeah okay good good that's great uh how is solid sound i i saw some news footage and things about it how is it for you Oh, it was the best one ever. It was incredible. I mean, we really loved our lineup this year. So just so many things that we felt excited to get to share with people. Yeah, the news things I'm referring to included, I think, Nels playing mm -hmm. with Jap Japanese Breakfast. And then David Byrne. Did you perform with David Byrne somehow? David Byrne contacted us because he was coming to see Terry Allen, who's he's buddies with Terry Allen. And... um 
I asked him if he wanted to sit in and he said he would like to love to sing California stars with me. Oh so with gosh. us, uh, we did that. And, uh, Michelle's honor played, uh, Jesus, etc. with us in our set on the Saturday night also. So yeah, there were, there were a lot of, a little bit less, you know, collaborations than in the past, just because we were being pretty careful about keeping, People, uh, I, I don't know, just not mixing it up as much as we have in the past just for testing purposes and all that stuff. But yeah, yeah. we did get some some visits on stage together, so it was nice. Uh, it sounded great. I hope I can attend. This is in Massachusetts, right? It's in North Adams, Massachusetts at, a, at Mass Mocha, which is an incredible contemporary art museum on the campus of a 19th century, 18th century factory that was a textile mill that became a capacitor factory for Sprague electronics in the, you know, <laughs> mid-century mid and then uh, eventually went out of business for that due to nanotechnology. <laughs> so just a, a whole history of uh, capitalism in one one spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's an interesting segue into my follow-up question because as it stands, and correct me if I'm wrong, Wilco has its own label, uh, own, rec- own recording studio, and then between Solid Sound and now Sky Blue Sky, you have at least, if that's a regular thing, then you've got two music festivals. Am I missing something? Is that accurate? That's pretty, yeah. You know, Sky Blue Sky is more of a hand curated festival that, you know, that we, we initiated that's solid sound. I'm sorry. Sky Blue Sky yeah. is more kind of a destination package kind of festival that was kind of presented to us as something we could participate in that other bands do similar things. And they're both very fun, but they're very different in terms of, what our overall involvement is, but we love doing them, doing both of them. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I'm based on what I was just describing. The motivation I'm guessing is to have fun because music <laughs> is fun and you get to put things together and put records out and all that stuff. So it's fun, but I think they're also fairly savvy business things. Like how important is it for you to have ownership as an artist over such things? Cause Lord knows we have a lot of festivals <laughs> so you you put your hat in the ring and I assume that's because you think the same way I put my hats in various rings I think I can maybe contribute to this and make it maybe just a little bit better maybe but I also feel like I enjoy that so much wouldn't be nice to do my own version of that thing so I assume that's all swimming around but is the ownership part important to you too? Well I mean when the, we started this so, Solid Sound Festival there weren't that many festivals uh, I mean there were starting to be more but it was really is really kind of modeled more on the smaller sort of scandinavian festivals that we had played in the 90s on you know a lot of the fall festivals in the smaller countries in europe tend to be on college campuses during you know some sort of winter break or things like you know they, they're 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 a little bit unique compared to what we think of as a festival in the united states which is big outdoor summertime, hot, sweaty, massive crowd kind of festival. We didn't think that was in the cards for us, but it was pretty exciting to, to, to do something that was more, I don't know, focused and small. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in the years since we started it, it's an explosion of festivals. Seems like there are like hundreds of them compared to when we started. Uh, And as far as like ownership, I mean, 
it was just a whim, really. It was just like kind of like, is this a, is this the thing we can do? And we tried it, and then it, the first, even the first one, felt like a really. I don't know if you're into Wilco, it's kind of like the broadest expression of what Wilco represents because it doesn't just incorporate our music. It incorporates the music we love and the art we love and the, and the, the comedians we love and the, and the community itself plays a strong role in communicating something communal. Yeah. I think the curatorial thing though, it seems to me you have that impulse. Like, wouldn't it be nice? Maybe ownership is the wrong word. Because I'm sure we've all <laughs> seen a festival lineup announcement and thought, oh, that's, I feel like most people are like, ah, it sucks. No matter who's playing. They just, ah, 50 bands, who cares? It sucks. And you're like, what? There's got to be 5% of this lineup that you think is fine. Sorry, I talked to lots of angry yeah. Canadians. So I'm like, really? You're that is, there must be something there you like. And then, uh, but then like, as you start uh, getting, uh, for me or others who get involved in these things, then you realize, oh my God. What a rigmarole infrastructurally to put this puzzle together of a festival. No wonder those people are stressed out and doing their best, you know, to fit all these people in. But all I'm getting at, though, is uh, curatorially, it's fun. I know that it can be fun to be like, wouldn't it be great if I could just put together the lineup mm -hmm. I love? So I'm sure. Do you have that impulse? Like, Are you hands on yourself, Jeff? And put oh, it together? Absolutely. It's yeah. uh, you know, it's I'm already, you know, compiling a list of hopeful suggestions for next time, you know, which we do it every other year for the Solid Sound Festival. Yeah. Partially to kind of keep it interesting and not have it be too much of I don't know, it takes a lot of energy for yeah. our, it's a small organization. I mean, our our whole organization is probably smaller than, you know, a lot of bigger bands, but in general, we if it's all hands on deck to put this whole thing together, and it takes a lot of, you know, a lot of hours of our time. So we try to try and do it over every other year, and uh, I mean, it does it does feel great to get. <laughs> it feels really validating to me to have like a huge dream of some artist coming to play and them saying yes, yeah. Um, yeah. and. I mean, I know we're paying them. <laughs> I know <laughs> that we try to make make it work, but we've actually gotten bigger artists than than we probably deserve to have because there are a fair amount of people that just want to do it because they've heard that it's a it's a good environment and a friendly friendly space to be able to make a musical statement. Well, I mean, I think it also is an extension of you just sharing your love of artists like it's more than sharing a playlist or whatever it's actually being like look like we love these people so much because i think you probably also recognize that uh you have influence over your fans and on some level like i'm sure you don't think about it that much in any draconian way but to, <laughs> to make a recommendation to your fans i'm sure that must be exciting for you to be like yeah you love us check out so and so like I, i'm is that there as well Absolutely. It's an incredible, it's an incredible position to be put in. And um, we definitely as a band benefited from people sharing their stages with us, you know, asked to go out and open for Neil Young or for REM and countless others. I mean, just that was a generous thing mm -hmm. for them to do, mm -hmm. to share their audience, to put us in front of people that might like us. And that definitely is a consideration 
for our festival. I know that there are people, I, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen testimonials to this fact, you know, that people have come and they've never heard of a certain amount of the you know, artists that are going to be there and they leave having a new favorite or, or a couple of new favorites. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's, that's really satisfying. And it's, uh, I mean, I just, I think, I think there should be more of it in general. I think that artists tend to be pretty, pretty isolated and maybe a little bit guarded about their influences sometimes. But most of the people that I, that I really love when you get them going, they have this, undiminished curiosity about the world and music and they they have lots and lots of suggestions to make of things that they've discovered and and they add you know they're generous with that knowledge yeah well for what it's worth i i appreciate it i appreciate your i think you know for what it's worth i i think you and i are aligned in so many aesthetic interests that i i appreciate the things that you you get behind if that for what that's worth uh it is appreciated and uh and by that uh, token, uh, I'd like to congratulate you on this new record, uh, Cruel Country. It's wonderful. Uh, I hope you're very proud of it. I hope you, I, all I'm saying is I think you should be really proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I am really proud of it. I love it. I love it. Um, the band loves it. We, we love the record and we're really, really, you know, we're going through that weird moment right after you put a record out into the world where it feels like, you're becoming aware of the fact that you've picked out a present for some people that are just going to go, eh, it's not, I would never wear anything like that. <laughs> you know, just to use a weird analogy, it's like, a, it's like a really considered gift. It's a really thoughtful thing that we love. And like most gifts that you think that somebody is going to love, and you're sure how could somebody not love this you you think that because you love it so much we love it so yeah. much that the inevitable criticisms that come with any single record ever put out or or even the indifference of it is a little bit like makes you feel a little bit like you wish you could just keep the present that you <laughs> <laughs> why did i you ever bought some present that you just want to keep after you see their reaction to it yeah I, I i never thought of it that way but yes now that you mention it i think so yeah yeah well i hope well you put out book you didn't you put out books right no, I haven't actually put out any books. People ask me if I should, are you putting out a book? And I say, no, I haven't done that yet. Well, okay. Well, you put things out into the world. Every week. Every week I put one of these yeah. things out. Yeah, absolutely. And so you see so you see reactions that are, let's just say, less than the, uh, given in the spirit that you're putting it out there? Well, I'll tell you this, like, uh, you know, external considerations <laughs> are, you know, we're in a don't read the comments zone. But I will tell you, mm -hmm. and this is no pressure on you by any stretch, but the rejection I feel is usually when a guest uh, and I have a nice encounter, maybe there's some follow-up messaging. This just happened to me, so it's on my mind. Comedians, they don't tend to share the stuff. And I'm like, oh, I shared your you with my audience. Why? why? And it sounds petty. I don't want to sound petty. I'm just <laughs> saying that's where it gets heartbreak. I'm like, oh, because that's it. If 50 people who weren't involved in it, tell me they hate it. I'm like, okay, that's your opinion. That doesn't happen, by the way. I'm fine. But if the guest <laughs> doesn't engage with it, or or I hear later like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that, because that's what this is, right? It's a lot of sharing people yeah. talking, and people get self-conscious about what they said, particularly these days. So, oh, my God, mm -hmm. I'm on the record sounding like an idiot. I'm not sharing that. I get that part, 
but nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I get a little, that's where it hurts. And I just had, uh-huh. I've had this good run of people sharing and loving and sending the guests. I mean, sending these lovely notes, had a couple comedians mm-hmm. on recently, nothing. And again, nice yeah. emails. Everything's good. No, I, I'll yeah. never know why they didn't do it. Cause it's, it's insane to be like, Hey, how come you didn't share the thing? I look like a lunatic and I don't want to do that. So I'm just mm-hmm. telling you how I feel. You mean like sharing on their social media, like that they were on the show? Or- I guess so. I mean, to me, it's, that's the really like, yes, that is what I'm getting <laughs> at. But to me, it's more like sharing it with the people that love you. That's mm-hmm. the way I look at it. It doesn't mean like it does help. Sometimes that's how things get shared these days and the word gets spread. Mm-hmm. But that's where that hurts more. What I'm saying is people can leave horrible comments. <laughs> But that doesn't bother me as much as the interact, like the actual person I engage with not engaging mm-hmm. or, or saying that something bothered them about it. That would hurt me way more. And I imagine you might, if someone in the band told you, Wilco said, uh, you know, I know we put this record up. Nah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I'm not so sure. Like that would probably bother you more than like some critic saying, Oh, you know, I'm guessing. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to make mental note of what's going to be required of me after this is over. <laughs> no, sorry. No pressure. Do do you don't like have a, to do it. Like a, like a telegram or do I need <laughs> yeah. to? Yeah, I need, I need. Edible, arra- an edible arrangement. I'll, I'll put my uh, mailing address in the chat so you can send it to me. No, no pressure. I really want to stress. No, I was. I will tell you this. I was excited to see your name because I know we've had nice conversations in the past. No, and I appreciate that. And it, this was, I'm, you're, I'm trying to be honest about it because you're, you're dealing with a thing. Like you say, you put something out. There's going to be a reception and you have to deal with mm-hmm. that, but it's your thing and you're going to live with it beyond that press cycle. You're going to, unless you mm-hmm. feel it's a failure, you're going to keep going. And that's how some of us in this realm are working right now every Mm -hmm. week i make a thing to get better and better and better sorry this is not to be about me Mm -hmm. i'm sorry jeff but i'm just saying no i'm enjoying this well the process of of exchange is what we're talking about a little bit i make a thing or you make a thing people consume it and gives them feelings that's great i'm really fascinated fascinated by this topic because um because it is it is it is something that you do because you want to connect and you want to have this conversation. You want to have this acknowledgement of what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this isn't a one way conversation. I'd love to know what you think and hear. I mean, I'm just talking figuratively about getting some energy back from the universe in the form of different people's reactions. And, it's just a, it's, it, 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 to be completely honest, I'm amazed at how blindsided I am every single time I put a record out by the fact, not that everybody doesn't love it, but that people go out of their way to weigh in with certain types of reactions that aren't even considered. Right. You know, are, that are just like, I haven't listened to it yet, but bleh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Or like, why can't it be this? And I, I'm like, I really think about it a lot. I think about it. It's worth introspecting because, A, I want, I'm, it's kind of amazing at, that I have this resilience that 
can completely forget that I, that that happens, that 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 hurts my feelings a little bit or upsets me, it just confuses me a, a, a tad. Yeah. It doesn't make me love what I do any less. It actually um, that's the really uplifting part of it as I feel even more strongly about what I'm doing when I start to get some of that reaction that's sort of ambivalent, you know? Well, I think when you're in the zone of making things to foster human connection and people react where they don't even consider it, they just, their reflex is to dehumanize it, to to Mm -hmm. treat it like it wasn't built by a human. I used to say this when I worked at, uh, the CBC, there would be like a general inbox for feedback. And if 10 things or if nine things were nice, the one negative one would bother me so much so that I would, mm-hmm. I would correspond with that person more, more like I'm, I was right. more prone to be like, and, and it wasn't like defensive. I was just like, Hey, sorry, you didn't like that thing. Appreciate the feedback. And I don't know what I was going for there in retrospect. I was a younger man. Maybe I was being passive aggressive, but I also think I was like, no, honestly, your opinion was heard. I'm a human mm-hmm. being that you're mm-hmm. lashing out at to a general inbox. I'm telling you a hundred percent of the time. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize someone was going to read this. I didn't realize you were going to read this. I'm just right. lashing out because I thought that this mechanism of dehumanized communication wasn't actually going to hit a human. So I don't right. know if you can relate to that. Oh, 100%. I I tend to, I totally get the impulse to respond to the, the, the negative reactions that you get. I also have a desire not to reward only. I mean, this happens on my sub stack. I write on a sub stack and I get, and that's, that's one place where I feel really compelled to, to stay in, in touch with what people are writing and read the comments and stuff. And, and it is, I have to stop myself from only responding to the people that are actually acting out, you know, acting out, kind of needing some attention, whether it's negative or positive. And I think that's a human impulse, you know, to like, oh, well, I need to set you straight. And I think you're right. I think a lot of times they, they have completely forgotten or have never had any idea what it takes to make something and put it out into the world and therefore cannot even fathom that there are feelings and attack, you know, <laughs> and, and there's an emotional investment on the other end of this bargain. Yeah. yeah. I alluded to the fact that I did that sort of stuff more when I was younger and I was also not a parent and now I'm a parent and I have mm-hmm. two young children and sometimes there are emotions. I don't know if you are I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with this. <laughs> yeah. And so negotiating that and figuring out where the anger is coming from and realizing like, oh, they're angry at themselves. And uh, that probably means that whenever I'm angry, I'm a little angry at myself. And so I, 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 mm-hmm. I really have firmly started to come to terms with when someone lashes out at you or me and it's mm-hmm. anonymous, something's not happy there. There's like no joy. There's something like not, there's not a happiness there that they felt compelled. Oh, no. What do you think? Uh, I think that that's pretty pretty clear yeah pretty, pretty clearly the case yeah and just out of curiosity it's like if you say for example see something written about you on twitter and you it's almost invariably 
somebody that has very limited engagement with the world. Like if you mm-hmm. just like do a little bit of like, who's, who's saying this to me? I want to know who's saying this to me. Cause it's interesting. Yeah. And it's not just like my ego is bruised. I just want to understand it because I'm on this end of it and I have a certain amount of understanding about where, what I've put into it. But who is this person? And you do ultimately feel real sadness, you know, yeah. because they'll have like 10 followers or they'll have like this, like, you know, obvious desire to make this connection. And they're just bad at it. They're just really bad yeah. at, at, at social interactions. And they, and it seems like they're probably bad at it in their lives outside of social media. And, and you, and that's, that's a good, that's a good reason never to engage because it's only kind of punching down in this, and there's, there's this iniquity in, how my platform is going to be perceived as being, I don't know, like a bully, like a bully at pulpit or something. You yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think I've been more relaxed about, again, I, I don't receive uh, pro- as much feedback about what I do as you do, because that's the whole game really is you put out, you put out <laughs> a record or you play a show and someone's going to talk about it and they're going to highlight mm-hmm. what they're going to highlight and they're going to be confused about what they're going to be confused about. I'm just by the way foreshadowing mm-hmm. the rest of this conversation potentially. Uh as I talk mm-hmm. to you about lyrics and my interpretations about them perhaps. But anyway, yeah, people are different and they are coming to everything mm-hmm. with their own perspective but also mm-hmm. pain. And and so, mm-hmm. you know, I look back at some old reviews of something I might have written and realize if they were negative in some way, I'm like, well, what was going on with my life that day? What was happening mm-hmm. with me? Was I upset about something? Oh, that was right around when so mm-hmm. such and such was going on. So I'm trying to really contextualize these comments mm-hmm. and these actions. Uh, but I'm also trying to move... The, the one thing I'll say, because you, you've been on a really prolific clip, but it's still spaced out. Like you'll put out a rec... I mean, like I say, I... I'm just glancing over at where your solo records are in the T section here. And you, you just seem to be putting out records a lot uh, in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm only relating that to, to, to what someone like me does because you, I put myself on a hamster wheel myself, done this to myself mm-hmm. once a week, twice a week. I'm just going to keep doing this and making stuff and learning from it, but it creates an immunity. Uh, it creates a little bit mm-hmm. of like, sometimes it's going to go well, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's going to be received mm-hmm. well, and sometimes it's not. And I just have to keep on to the next one. So do you have mm-hmm. that at this point in your trajectory, having made so many records for so long? I get that it gets to you, whatever you're getting <laughs> back. But are you able to be like, mm-hmm. co- like compartmentalize it and just keep, you must, I think the answer is obvious because you're still here. We're still talking about new records, mm-hmm. but clearly you think about this. Are you are you at a point where you can just like, okay, I guess that's what happened and on with it. I just, I'm going to keep going. Yeah, nobody was going to say something that was so hurtful that it would make me stop doing what I do. It would have happened a long, long time ago. But, but no, it's, it's, I mean, I don't think... I don't mean to make it sound like I'm sitting around reading my <laughs> reviews and sorry for myself because that's not happening. And and one of the reasons that doesn't happen is because the antidote is and always has been that by the time something is put out into the world, I'm already writing new songs. I'm already thinking about the next record and I'm, I'm 
I'm excited about how the world is going to unfold into <laughs> this this new thing that I feel like I'm getting better at, and I see I'm I see progress <laughs> in myself over a long period of time. I feel like just the record I just made. I feel like certain things I I just could not have done ten years ago or five years ago, and and even things that nobody would ever be able to hear, but just how much easier it was for me to play a certain chord progression in the, in the rhythm I wanted it to be and how it felt to me to be not having to think about it so hard or some, you know, there's very subtle things that just, just like notice this incremental growth and it's, that's very rewarding and it is sustaining, yeah. you know, and I have a, I have a, I have a couple one real quick things to say about what of we course. were just talking about though. It doesn't just happen in social media and i've noticed this on stage as well and i think it's an evolutionary thing that we are on the lookout for danger and on stage when you look out at an audience you automatically see the person yawning the entire audience could be smiling having a good time having a great time and you notice all of the people having a bad time without even looking for them and it took me a long time to realize that I was doing that and, and not not obsessing about them, but definitely giving them more of my energy than they deserved. Because they would be sitting next to somebody that's having the time of their life and you want to sing to them. You want to sing to the people that are, are giving it back to you. But I feel like it's something that's like sort of well, primal. Well, no, it's, about uh, yeah, I've read, I've read books about this uh, and apparently I didn't know this but it makes sense for me. We have a very negative bias. Our brains have this negative bias. And I didn't know that. I just thought maybe I was a bit grumpy, but your brain does, <laughs> your brain tends to have, I don't know. We, like I said, I think what I, the example I cited about scanning a, a feedback inbox and gravitating towards a negative one or what you're describing, it is evolutionary for whatever reason, people, people yeah. like us, at least you and me at this point, we are drawn <laughs> to the negative energy to try. I think it's because we want to, I think there's part of us that wishes we could fix it for that person. Right. And and I don't know what that's about. I don't think it's all narcissism. I don't think it's all, it's, there's something there. It's, it's, I hope it's more than that. Those things. I think it's just, it's a challenge. Yes. It's a challenge. That person, and it's also a certain amount of protecting, uh, like the, if something bad is going to happen, it's going to come from that guy <laughs> or like if the show is going to be ba- a failure, it's going to grow out of this, this energy right, right here. So I need to bend to this energy and, and extinguish it <laughs> you know, or, or, or at least disarm it somehow. And I feel like that's possible that's, that, that my brain is doing that calculus. That's fascinating. That's probably what it is. You've actually hit the nail on the head. You go to the negative. If I, if I think back to 12, 15 years ago, whenever I was doing that thing where I was looking in the inbox, probably didn't want that person's opinion to spread. You know what I mean? I yeah, never th- even thought of that that way. Huh. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this has been a mm-hmm. good session. Thank you very much, Jeff. You've. Uh... <laughs> I think I was that I've realized over the years is that, you know, I look at making some making art and putting out in the world as an act of love. I think it's a loving thing to do. I mean, that sounds very exalted and whatever, but I think it's, it's, it, it is 
an effort to connect, which grows out of a sincere desire to share my affection for the world. And, and it is an act of love, in my opinion. And some people are upset to the point where they're not going to welcome every act of love. If you have a, if you're in a relationship, there are times where you get in arguments and the, you, you have to wait for the time, right time to say you're sorry. Even mm -hmm. someone's not even going to will, you know, willingly accept that gesture right away. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people out there really hurt and really feel betrayed by the world. And they can even project that feeling of betrayal on a band that they've loved and has changed and hasn't stayed the same and hasn't been, uh, or is a reflection of them getting older. There's a, like, there are a lot of ways that this relationship that is developed with different people that listen to our music can feel like a betrayal. And I have to understand that and understand that they come at it not ready to accept me saying, I love you. <laughs> that, that, it's an absolutely excellent way of putting it. I, I think that's true. Um, and I do think as I, I mean, I, I think you know this, Jeff, like, I've followed your work uh, for a long, long time. And I was thinking about it today that an older friend of mine worked at a record store when Being There came out. And I'd seen the videos on Much Music. I was in university at the time, so I, I lost my TV cable privileges when I moved out of my parents' house. But uh, I'd seen <laughs> the videos. Anyway, he handed me Being There, or sorry, I paid for it. I didn't walk off with it. I paid for it. And uh, ever since, just totally immersed. And you talk about people's reaction to the band changing. And I was thinking about it today, like the change in Wilco for me has been so imperceptible. I've seen the mm -hmm. band so many times. I've immersed myself in all your records. And the closest analogy I could come up with is when someone who knows my family sees my kids for the first time in a while, mm -hmm. they'll be like, oh, they got so big. And I think, oh, mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't even notice. I see them every day. So I'm saying as a fan, I right. feel like I just have seen Wilco every day. So I haven't, like, I, uh, I will say, if I'm right, if I'm going through the discography, I'm like, oh yeah, this was a bit of a left turn. But what I'm saying is your change, your evolution isn't with me every day. I've just accepted it that mm -hmm. I'm on this ride with you. You're one of my favorite bands. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go where you, I'm going to trust you too. You're the pilots. I'm trusting you. Mm -hmm. I feel this way about right. certain bands where I was just along for mm -hmm. the whole ride and, or I am still, and that's it. That's mm -hmm. where I'm at with it. I don't, I have trouble picking favorite records. I have trouble. I'm like, I'm on the ride right now. I'll tell you maybe at the end mm -hmm. how it worked out. Anyway, I just wanted to put that to you in terms of one fan letting you know yeah. how I perceive your changes, if you will. I'm putting that in air quotes for those listening. Thank you. Well, yeah. I, yeah. I think that that's, I feel like we have a lot of connections with people that are similar to your experience. And that's, that makes me really, really happy. That's like, that's like a really human scale bit of information to have. It feels rewarding to know that, I mean, that's sort of the spirit that everything's made in, you know, like, Hey, we're, I'm going to be honest about who I am right now. And, and I'm going to put this up. And this is the best I can do right now. I, I, I promise you, <laughs> this is the best I can. Do. I'm not trying to point over on you. I'm not trying to make something that I just want your cash. You know, it's, it's, uh, but then there are people that are, 
are much more casual than that about almost any artist. And, and there are a lot of, I think there are also a lot of people that have a specific moment in their life where they really form an identity around a few, a few pieces of music or a few bands or a few things that I'm, I'm that guy, I'm a replacements guy, (laughs) you know, like they have this guy. Yeah. That fits me. That fits me. And it's, you know, it has the same danger that almost any kind of external identity appropriation is going to have is that there's a shelf life for it. And, and, it, and it, it's not it's not the same as following an artistic output. It's more uh, it's been absorbed into some other need that, that isn't necessarily artistic. Do you relate to that? Because I think there are people who will go to a, a show, let's say by Wilco, and they'll leave the show and someone will say, how was the show? And they say, oh, that was good, but they only played two songs from uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. I didn't like that. And if you step mm-hmm. back and, well, well, how was the rest of the show? Oh, I was good, but that's my record. Mm-hmm. That yeah. We're talking about projection earlier, I think, a little bit. And I do think that people... The records that mean the most to them remind them of a time where they felt the best. And mm-hmm. does that make sense? Like I do, I've been to a couple of shows. I know you've engaged with them too. The, the shows where you play a record front to back. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I know that, um, that's got to be inherently thrilling and maybe a little like, am I just a nostalgia machine right now for these people? But you are like, tra- you are by doing that, transforming the space into a year probably Mm -hmm. a year in time for you and for the fans who are like, you've done this, I think, haven't you in Chicago where you'll be like this night we're playing AM this night we're playing being there. Have you guys done that? I think you have, right? Like you've played records over successive nights, like sequentially. We only did that at solid sound one time uh, where we, we had the audience vote ahead of time on the record they wanted us to do that too. And okay. they voted they're not dummies, so they voted on the longest record they voted for being there. <laughs> and then just on a whim, we actually went out and encored with Yankee Hotel Foxtra. Right. Right. And up until that moment, that was the only time we'd ever played those albums in their entirety, sequenced the way they are on the record. Right. Maybe we did Yankee Hotel Foxtrot as like a promo thing right right before it came out where we tried where we played the whole thing. But no, it's been a very rare. That was at the time it came out. Well, that makes and that would make that would make sense. Yeah. 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 And then recently we just did these anniversary shows. And these were really the first shows I think of as uh, album shows The uh, we really, really tried to recreate the album and the sequence and relearned all of the old arrangements and the subtle things that have changed over the years from playing all the songs and having them in all, all of them have remained in rotation in our repertoire. So yeah. uh, we had to learn things and certain just these odd measures would get like changed over time. Like sometimes why is there like an extra bar here? We used to never play this and, so we had to like unlearn muscle memory and everything. And that was a really, I was really shocked at how devastating it was for me emotionally to like play that whole record through and then uh, feel that, that audience wait. Ah. But it was, it was beautiful. I was just really happy when we got that. We had eight shows that we did Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And I was really happy that we didn't have 20, <laughs> you know, I was really happy that we made it somewhat, 
not we had not bitten off more than we could chew for that. And, yeah. So but it was also the music like that is is sequenced and paced to be a certain experience in and of itself, aside from the individual songs. It really is. And that that spell being cast over 55 minutes is a different thing. And then by the end of the show, when we would get to the long, super long, drawn out, fade out coda of reservations, the, the fact that the audience stayed quiet all the way through the end of it, and then the, the record would actually end before people knew it ended. And there would just be this, this air in the room still just kind of hanging there before people would start applauding that just like would wipe me out every night and made me cry so much. <laughs> it's just such a powerful experience that that doesn't happen if you just play the coda to reservations. Yeah. So it's, it it's emotionally transformative for you as much as it is, as it is the audience. And I can appreciate that, but it is an interesting where I'm coming from is psychologically or whatever, behaviorally, that's an interesting knot. Because someone like me is going to remember when I went on the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot tour. Oh, yeah, that's when I met my now wife. Like, it's just like a weird time machine thing for each person is is going to bring right. their own joy and pain from whenever that they experience that record and what that record... Because records mean they're little markers in time for some of us, right? Like, oh, yeah, when I first heard this, even just telling you about... But it's not all the same time. Exactly. I mean, there were teenage kids there that had just gotten into the record. Yeah shows and there's still a, a weight to it when it when a record becomes something like a companion to someone yeah. you know it has a has a role in keeping someone company you know yeah no absolutely i find this conversation fascinating because i've long thought that you have a particular interest in sort of human behavior in your songwriting mm -hmm. and in the books you've written as well and this brings me, in a weird way, to some of the lyrics on this record. If you don't mind, I'd like to read a couple of them out to you. This sure. could be awkward, but I don't know. So I want to begin by reading the lyrics uh, to uh, some of the lyrics, rather, to Hearts Hard to Find. I don't mind when certain people die. I can't cry. I wonder why. I could lie and say it makes me sad. There's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm just bad. My heart's hard to find. Sometimes, oh, I lose it all the time. So very, very fascinating on several levels. I have thoughts about these, but I actually want it. Well, also, I think, and this is just me fanboying out, I feel like there's a little trilogy happening between that song, The Universe, and Many Worlds. That's where I'm reading it. I, that's, I think that song's at the end of that, right? I think. I think that's mm -hmm. right. Yeah, anyway, before we get into me... <laughs> Do you have a sense of where the the line a line like I don't mind when certain people die came from because we've been talking a lot about how humans are relating to one another and this has been a very strange the pandemic has been a very strange mm -hmm. time for the kind of dehumanization we I was talking about I think more benign versions of it but I hear mm -hmm. that a lot on this particular record that particular sequence of words can you talk a little bit about where that might have come from I mean it could have come from a, a lot of different places in my experience and interactions with the world and just the, you know, just experiencing the world through media. Mm. We live in a time where 
celebrity culture is coming to an age where a lot of people that we grew up with are dying. And we're aware of more people probably than any other generation, or, or at least the people alive now are aware of more people, know the names of and are, have some awareness of more people probably than any other group of humans that walk the earth. And because the prevalence of media, prevalence of television, prevalence of, you know, our culture is just, I don't know, I just can't imagine someone 100 years ago knew about or would be aware of the, the multitudes of deaths of happening every day of, right. of minor celebrities or like just notable people that we would we, we just watch come and go huh. all day long. That's, oh, that's a whole other way of looking. I didn't even consider that. That makes sense. Uh, I was looking at it from a different point of view, but that's fascinating. Well, but I don't think it's necessarily from that, but it's just like something I've thought about. And it's, uh, you know, because, you know, it's like, you know, some celebrity deaths, really really hit you and then there's some that you even if you love the person you cared about the person you enjoyed their work just like oh you know i don't i don't like i don't like when john prine died it really really hit me it really hurt really just didn't feel like i could cope with that knowledge and as much as i love prince i can't say that that same feeling happened to me like it's a weird it's a weird sensation i didn't have that sense of like almost familial loss or, or like, you know, it was just, he wasn't, if I'm being completely honest, he wasn't completely real to me. He was just Prince is Prince to me, the way he was when he was alive. Right. Right. He didn't seem real. Yeah. I Right. Well, the way his persona, everything about him to me feels very similar to when he was alive. I didn't lose very much of that connection. I can't recall. Did you interact much, uh, a fair amount rather, with John Prime personally? Nope. I met him a few times, but no, I never, I didn't have a deep, you know, interaction with him. So you're really. That being said, necessarily people I'm singing about in in that song, you know, I could be singing about my cousin calling me up and telling me that my aunt died or something like that. And that's a, some, that's a, that's, I think I'm just trying to be honest, you know, yeah. it's not necessarily saying I don't care about somebody dying. It's just trying to be honest about the fact that even somebody you love when they die, you don't always get to have the emotion you want to have huh. at that moment. I felt like I wasn't crying enough and upset enough when my dad died. You know, that's just completely honest. And it and ultimately it hit me really, really hard. And I grieved. I still grieve my father being gone. I grieve my mother being gone. But I think most people can relate to that. But they don't want to talk about the fact that that is one of the surreal things that happens when we experience loss mm. is that it doesn't hit you in the way you feel like is proper or you're supposed to you're supposed to grieve and and that's a learning process that as you get older you you learn that you can't force when it hits you you can't expect yourself to be able to appreciate the loss for what it is in the moment you don't it's not on demand It's yeah, no, that is a really, I appreciate that um, perspective on it because I couldn't help but read it in terms of the way 
we I feel like at this point in time we are really in we have been really inundated with death uh on on a For mass sure. scale obviously because of this pandemic and I think it's created both a bit of numbness but within that resignation like this is just happening and you know I've lost some people to covid um but it's become it's gone from like this is really sad to I guess that's just what's going to happen which and then some people say well mm-hmm. yeah that's what that's you yourself have said we were born to die like there's just there's <laughs> just like yeah this is going to happen it might be happening sooner <clears throat> but then it's creating this polarization among like about how seriously are we to take it and and at the extreme end of interpreting that lyric we've seen some real like schaden schadenfreude oh of course that person died they were against vaccines. They were against, you know, like I've seen right. that too. So it's just a level of dehumanization. I, again, I, I hate to keep using that term. I'm not familiar with this level of it, this level of acceptance that something that seems preventable in terms of causing the, the, the casualties is that mm-hmm. it, it is, is sort of being, uh, has been politicized, but also like, I don't know. People are just like, I give up. I'm not going to try to protect people. Uh, I don't care about other people. I'm not going to get wear masks. I'm not going to do this and that. So there's where I was coming from. Um, and that just mm-hmm. might- when you heard that, that what you thought it was about. It struck me again. This is what I'm bringing to it. Right. Cause I think it mm-hmm. struck a nerve with me. Obviously it struck a nerve with me. I've pointed it out. I don't like to say, mm-hmm. I don't mind when certain people die is a pretty cold thing to say. Mm-hmm. But I also think it is, it's kind of what's happening socially, politically right now. It's not even a harsh thing. It's just like, I don't know what, it's like you're saying, I can't be sad all the time mm-hmm. for all of these deaths that I'm confronted with every day. Cause we are, I think it's safe to say we are. It's not just celebrities. It's like mm-hmm. human beings. If you go on Twitter, there's like memorials to COVID victims. Like there's just threads. Right. And, uh, you know, and obviously as we're speaking in the wake of, America and it's constant mass shootings. Like it, you get a little numb mm-hmm. as a, as a, I can tell you, like it hurts like hell and I have children and, but you get a little like, yeah, I guess that's just the way that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where I'm coming from. It's like, there's a resigned acceptance in that kind of sentiment, but I can't tell if you were coming at it. I appreciate your, you're like, I'm just being honest, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tell if it was critical as well of that sentiment does that make sense right um i don't really know i don't i mean i'm (laughs) questioning whether am i am i just a bad person i don't think i am um but i also don't think that being good is defined by being able to be sad at every single loss of life or being aware i mean like literally would never end it would never end um and especially living in a time like the time we've been living through I don't know whether what other option you have other than to inoculate yourself from a certain amount of, you know, just you're going to be aware of it. But do you have to invest in every every death as an emotional event for you, you personally, even for people you don't know and things? I mean, it's we're not good at death. As a culture, as Americans, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a convert to Judaism. I appreciate a lot about the way in the Jewish tradition death is treated. 
and like the, the some of the rules around grieving really make a lot of sense. Not necessarily rules, but sort of just like the wisdom around, we'll give it a year, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and and come back and dedicate the stone or, you know, like, let's bury the person as soon as possible. Like, um, like the open casket thing of my childhood is a strange, you know, tradition. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, we just are, I don't know. I think we prefer not to think about it. We're just very, very, we, and, and I think because of that, we prefer not to think about it. We've gotten really good at not thinking about it. And then this, this time period happens where I think even during the Spanish flu, same as some, some, something similar in terms of a pandemic, you know, you would probably see newspaper reports, but there's no way that you have the same at your fingertips and kind of access to the world suffering at every moment and that with that media structure at that time, it's a very complicating element to throw into the, the mix of a pandemic. Obviously it, it, it killed a lot of people. It was, it had to have killed a lot of people. The fact that the, 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 the way we communicate involves uh, this sort of wild west of information and, and, and interaction. There's no doubt that people got their information from the wrong wrong place, ended up doing something that they would have otherwise maybe avoided and died. Uh, well, I, I hear you trying to articulate communication breakdowns, language barriers throughout this record even. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that as a straight English language versus other language. Like there's the line in the universe, talk to me, I don't want to hear poetry, say it plain, like how you really speak. And that's just mind-blowing right now in an age where people people distrust information and also choose which information they're going to get and uh mm-hmm. and and peddle disinformation. Like I know there's a like I was looking at that and I was like is that about anti-intellectualism? Is it how people do or don't value art? Uh what's going on in mm-hmm. that, you know? And Again, I hate to put you on the spot each time with like, tell me what it means. But are you employing, the, let me put it to you this way. Are you employing the voice of someone who's talking to someone like you, who does what you do? <laughs> when, you, when you invoke poetry, it's, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't understand your abstraction. Clear it up for me. I feel like this sentiment is throughout this record. It feels to me like a record really about interpersonal connection and communication. But that stuck out to me as like, Oh yeah, we're not all speaking the same language. Uh, we don't understand each other. So what are we saying? How are we communicating? Sorry, what do you make of where I'm coming from with that in terms of that song? Well, I mean, again, I don't know if I'm singing to someone or to myself. In a lot of cases, you know, mm-hmm. it's very muddled. And and in in a situation like this, I think I could hold both points of view pretty with equal conviction. You know, I, I think that I definitely feel an impulse to not write the way I've written a lot in my life right now. I feel like the abstractions cannot possibly stand out in contrast to the abstractions of the world (laughs) that we're maneuvering through right now. There's, you know, it's like, surrealism feels very quaint to me at this moment in history, you know, like a surrealistic game to get language to jump off the page. 
I'm sorry, I don't have a lot of patience for that type of art right now. So I think it does grow out of a certain amount of, listen, Jeff, don't do this. You don't need to do this. I mean, what do you, I mean, actually, that's a thread throughout everything I've ever written, even the abstractions, even the things that I was just trying to find some way to say something I feel is very, very simple and elemental. And I don't know how to get it to be clear or understood. Hmm. And in the, in the past, a certain amount of experimentation or abstraction of language is a reaction to language being very, very inefficient. And, you know, like Gertrude Stein, if the, a rose is a rose is a rose. Okay. Now I finally fucking see the rose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, like it, it took, it couldn't, you don't, just, just don't write, there's a rose on the page. At some point, uh, language has emptied itself of, of its original meanings. It says like it's, in, it's become impotent to express something that it was designed to express. And you have to do something different to shake people out of their assumption that you're saying what you're saying. Right. right. And at this moment in time, those strategies for communicating felt very frivolous and unappealing to me. And so there was a constant feeling. And that's why I think country songs and country forms and folk form, folk song forms felt very useful to try and pour something into them that felt very unsettled, but needed a, f- a foundation needed something solid enough to build on do you i was thinking about this today because i'm a country music fan and i have a sense of memory of when i first sort of encountered it but as i grew older i realized it was more complicated than i thought it was and i also mm-hmm. the more i studied it the more i realized how connected to jazz it was in terms of guitar playing in particular mm-hmm. do you think it's misconstrued as a very simple art form, country music? I think, um, yeah, I think that, uh, <laughs> like, I'm just like, trying to find a place to sit. <laughs> that looks complicated. <laughs> that was complicated. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get up now. I'm just, I live, okay? Do I, I need live, to call someone? Vish, I live here on the floor now of this cabin, <laughs> and you might need to call my wife. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll call, I'll call Suze. We'll get, we'll get something worked out here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's such a broad thing. I don't know. I mean, some of it is very simple and some of it is is incredibly complex. And the trick is for you to not know which is which, <laughs> you know. I think there's a perception or there's lore, or I don't know what to call it, but the narrative around your band is that Wil- Wilco were associated with alt country and folk country or whatever, folk rock. And for, for our, like I was saying earlier, to me, those changes are almost imperceptible to me now. I don't even rem- remember what everyone was going on about, but there is this feeling that you made a conscious decision to leave that world a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then in your essay that accompanies this record, you talk about, actually, you know what? We've gone country, like kind of a <laughs> self-aware acknowledgement of how the band is perceived in relation to that genre. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm what I'm getting at is 
What was it about that we hear this all the time? Folk musicians, some of them very famously go electric. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's something about the form that feels like people want to transcend it. If you look back on it now in the context of this record, which again, it's called Cruel Country. To me, it sounds like country music. But when you think back on where you were and getting, a, again, I don't want to suggest you were getting away from it unless you agree with that <laughs> sentiment, because I feel like it's reductive. But when you think back about what you were so, supposedly getting away from, what was it? What was it? What was it? Was there some orthodoxy there that you were feeling cramped by? Or, or what was it? What was going on that made you think we got to get away from whatever this genre signifier is or we're fucked? I think... Well, aside from just being a little uncomfortable with any genre uh, as a as a place to reside and work within, I think at the time there were there was a to me there was a toxic concern with authenticity at the time that I wanted no part of at all because I feel like it's completely dishonest and completely counterproductive to the act of making art that is honest because to me you don't get to choose whether you're authentic or not based on on your style or your clothes or your your record collection or anything like that and all the people that that made the body of work the body the songbook that I'm most com comfortable with or familiar with they did not do it with any consideration of them themselves being authentic, in my opinion, you know, in fact, some of them were completely inauthentic intentionally. Right. There's like, you know, Jewish songwriting teams in New York, writing country songs, or <laughs> like writing, you know, songs for rural artists to sing. Yeah. Yeah. Also, they're just people sitting on their porches playing whatever they could get their hands on and, and, you know, the fact that they could get only get a cheap, crappy banjo would di dictate a certain amount of virtuosity. Could they even could be achieved on that? Mm. But that wasn't the essence of it. The essence of it was to make a noise and liberate yourself to express yourself in your community, at the dance, at the, you know, whatever, whatever. It was functional. There was a functionality to it. It wasn't beholden to a marketing term which is exactly what it is. It's a, it, that music was made by the same people for long, a long, long, long period of time. There was black people, white people, everybody doing what they would, could, could have been called anything. Hmm. And it was divided up at a certain point in time when the, when the recording industry decided that that was a way to sell records and make sure that you found the right audience for them. And to make, and also to make sure that they didn't mix, right. they did not find each other. And, that's all pretty wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> well, you know? and, and I think internet consumption has destroyed all that orthodoxy, right? There's no, for better or for worse, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of puritanical music genre people anymore, particularly younger. It's, extre yeah. it's extremely quaint. My kids just can't even fathom what it was like to have lines in the sand drawn around whether you liked the Ramones or you know, Holland Oates or something like that yeah. at, at a certain period in, in his in history. Uh, they like everything, anything. There's no embarrassment about liking something. It's the way it should be. And on top of that all, 
the internet has made all things happening all at once. So there's, there's, there aren't these wild jumps culturally between, you know, when we made our first record uh, in 1990 with Uncle Tupelo, we were only 20 years away from 1970. And, or, you know, you could say we were, oh, we were 30 years away from 1960. If you look at the difference in music in 1960 and when we made our first record, it's wild. Yeah. You know, and now we're 30 years from our first record. 32 years. Yeah. 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 That just doesn't look that wildly different to me. <laughs> no, there is. Does it to anyone? No, I feel like time's a bit of a bit become a bit of a flat circle. Cause mm-hmm. uh, if you look, right. look at how we dress, like you could, yeah. I remember seeing photos of people in the 90s, 80s, 80s and nineties. That's my, that's when I, I was mm-hmm. born in the late seventies. Each photo, like each, the medium changed. Like the, the, the photos looked mm-hmm. different from one. The seventies photos looked a lot different from the eighties. The technology changed, mm-hmm. doesn't it? I'm. This is very reductive, but by and large, yes, there's been some high definition changes. Like there's some stuff that has changed on a technical level, but we kind of. I feel like we all dress however we want. There's no like nineties aesthetic, uh, like there was mm-hmm. with hair or whatever you want to call it. Everyone just, mm-hmm. everyone's just sort of giving up on. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my ki- when I when I go on this rant with my kids, they actually disagree. They think that they can absolutely tell the difference between a, a, a song that came out in 2005 and a song that came out in 2015 huh. or something like that. And and um I think with certain maybe with maybe more pop uh certain genres uh, if if we're looking at very specific things, you could probably make a case that there are real differences in production and things like that but my point to them i don't think they can even understand it i don't think they can even grasp because it's all happening at once and has been since they were born they don't get how weird it is that the that happy days was on when we were kids yeah, right. in the 70s it's like glorifying something that only happened 13 years earlier <laughs> at a nostalgia a nostalgia trip so quickly yeah that's true yeah it is weird i I appreciate what you're saying about genre signifiers. The record, though, is called Cruel Country. And based on your essay and and just listening to it, I feel like there's two meanings there. Uh, you're alluding to country music, but you're alluding to the country of the United States of America is where I'm coming from. Does country music feel to you like a particularly American art form? Like maybe more than... I know this is very complicated, and someone mm. will call us out call me out for even intimating this given the way traditions work and how they travel, but in its current form or our current understanding of the form, does it feel particularly American to you? Well, I mean, um, (laughs) stumped you. (laughs) I mean, yeah, no, I think it, I mean, when I think, I think there are certain things that I think of when I think of country music and American folk music that feels that way to me because I can't picture it being made anywhere else. There is, there is an element of the land and location and regionality and vocabularies and vernaculars and, 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 you know, there is an indigenous nature to some of it, you know, 
That being said, I think that the term itself is an agreed upon fiction, you know, just like the United States is an agreed upon fiction. Uh, we, but uh, I, take a, I take a great deal of pride in like thinking that I'm part of something that's a tradition. Uh, but it's not just a tradition of American artists. It's a tradition of humans in my, like feeling compelled to make noise and be heard and liberate themselves again into uh, some state of mind where they can feel comfortable being themselves on purpose, you know? And then what happens uh, that grows from that is somebody else sees somebody do that as a model behavior and it becomes a movement and maybe a little microscopic movement. And it's happened over and over and over again. Punk rock was that hardcore punk rock in Southern California was that hillbilly music in, in the, you know, in Appalachia was that to some degree. I mean, it's just that it's somebody sees somebody do it. Yeah. And I appreciate how things get codified like that part I get, but I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, you have employed this phrase for two two reasons. Is that is that fair to say? Am I? I feel like I'm deriving this from your own words. But do yeah. you, do you feel like it is a reflection of country music as you interpret it and convey it as a band? But also, it is clearly a, a look at America from your mm. vantage point. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think. I can say all of this honestly while still being a little bit suspicious of the term in that I want to communicate where I feel like people are, it's a part of the communication. It's a part of the effort to communicate. If I say it's country, but it doesn't sound like country to somebody, that's fine. But I think that there's an, there's an act of sincerity in saying but it is, but it is country. It is, this is my country. This is, this is my country too. This is what I, I'm allowed to love this too. I'm allowed to love this thing that you have taken ownership of (laughs) whoever you is, uh, you know, or have decided it can only be one thing. Um, There's a little bit of, an act of defiance, in, in my opinion, and just saying, okay, well, let's call this one country. <laughs> this is what this is. And let's see how that changes how you think about what it is. Because in my opinion, probably more prominently in the way I've worked my whole life, it's all the same. It's all yeah. the exact same thing. That's kind of where I was coming from before. And I didn't mean, I know there will mm-hmm. be fans who disagree. Mm-hmm. I view it as like the same thing (laughs) like this record when i think about all the records it feels the same however you're a music fan jeff i know this as well music fans can get obsessed with artistic eras Mm -hmm. phases like just curious i remember watching uh that show you do with your family once uh what's it Mm -hmm. called it's on instagram i'm forgetting the tweety show stuff in our house it's a very simple name stuff in our house that's the thing i couldn't remember i apologize but uh you get you and your kids were going on a little riff about Bob Dylan's voice, Nashville skyline mm-hmm. era. And I, I was always stuck with me cause I get, uh, I get really obsessed with different Bob Dylan eras and, uh, and Wilco eras and Fugazi <laughs> eras. Like there's eras, you know, we yeah. just can't help it. Can't help yeah. ourselves. And then what happens, I think, is you look for threads mm-hmm. in the, if, between the new work and their older stuff. 
I think you framed this record as being the first one you've made kind of like the way you made Sky Blue Sky. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Live yeah. off the floor. So yeah. then, of course, I read that and then I'm listening. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds like it could be on Sky Blue Sky. And then <laughs> it's a double record. So I'm like, oh, like being there. So my head just goes to those places and, and then I hear it. There's certain mm-hmm. songs where I'm like, I can actually hear the entire Wilco discography mm-hmm. on this double record because it's been a journey and that mm-hmm. makes sense. Everything right. they've seen and experienced along the journey mm-hmm. is going to be on the latest thing. Do you do that as a music fan? Do you, do you compartmentalize an artist you love and get really obsessed with like the threads and how the new thing relates to maybe the old thing? And oh, what does that make me feel like a, mm-hmm. does it give you like a visceral reaction when you hear and feel those things? I mean, I think I've, as a music fan, I've tried to put together an accurate timeline just so I can understand an artist's evolution that I care about. You know, like, I, I think it's harder to contemplate if I don't know that, say, for example, where Desire falls in Dylan's catalog, I wouldn't be confusing to me, I think, to try and figure out how that happened if it was earlier and how it happened if it was later you know right. like so yeah. you have, like i have to have some context and i think artists i really care about I, I mean i think that that thread makes sense to pay attention to or an author you know just like following the way that their work uh evolves and and deepens or maybe loses you a certain amount at some of the time uh, it's all fairly interesting if you're already interested in the artist, if you have a fair, yeah. if you have a deep kind of like ride or die connection to the, to the person, the author, uh, the artist, it's, it's important to pay attention to it. I think the thing that you're asking about is whether or not it means any more than it means for me to take advantage of the fact that, Wilco doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah. Wilco is aware of the things that are, has been that have been said about Wilco. We are aware and connected to our fans. We are aware of the fact that if I say this is a country record, that is going to change a certain amount about the way people come to it and what they listen to. And, and, and the question is, am I supposed to not do that? Mm. The question is, am I supposed to not put things out with all of the tools available to lead people to kind of receive it in the way that I hope that they do. And I think it's completely within my role uh, (laughs) to be a Sherpa of some sort to get people to come to the music and in a way that contributes to the most to get them, I don't know, get come to them where they are understanding where they are and then hopefully still able to use that as something that's very hard to do after many, many years of making records. And that is to create some sense of awe or surprise, some sense of like, like discovery for something uh, after 12 records is, I mean, I've experienced many, many times where I feel like if Schmilko had come out and it was the only record that ever had been put out by Wilco, I believe in those songs and the weirdness of that record and the uniqueness of that record so much that I think that its perception of it would have been much different if it was by a band that nobody had ever heard of. Huh. 
Right. So it's the context. Okay. I appreciate that. It's a context that I don't have much control over. But in this case, I used a tiny amount of like what little control I have to just, I don't know, just to set it up and set it up like with the, that's what a title does. I just, the essay that came with it is just an extension of the title. If it was the title alone, I think would have probably accomplished what I'm talking about. Mm. It's just like having the word country in the title and, and the cover art is what everybody does. That's a part of presenting your art to the world mm. and, and hopefully functions that way to say, come, come here. Okay. So, so in terms <laughs> of, yeah, and I appreciate that. So in terms of what you've conveyed, you are pointing a little bit to the band's past, whether it's sky blue sky, whether the fact that you're talking about how the earliest perception of the band was that it was a country band. You've written two books recently, mm-hmm. too. One was a memoir. One was, unlike David Letterman, I have a copy of the latest one right here. <laughs> For those of you at home who can't actually see this because it's an audio experience, How to Write One Song is the book I was holding up. So you've written some books. Uh, you're talking about older things that have happened in Wilco's trajectory that inf- may inform how you approached your brand new record. So... I think we're right to assume you're feeling a little reflective these days. Uh, is mm-hmm. that true? Like, can you honestly say like, yeah, I actually, if I think about it, I am pondering life a little, uh, the past a little bit. I mean, a lot of us have been doing this during the pandemic, I'll tell you, Jeff, just for comfort. Because pre, pre-2019, pre yeah. <laughs> was we realized probably some of us, that was actually pretty good. I mean, as much as it sucked for mm-hmm. a lot of us, a lot of people, uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't as bad as what the the subsequent couple of years where so people were telling me in this context oh i i used the downtime to dig into my history and find old records i haven't put out uh or or whatever anyway do you have any is any of that reflection uh coming through in the the latest your books or the latest record or anything like that well i, I mean i have a real strong distrust and and sort of distaste for nostalgia so I, it makes me feel like i'm I don't want to be misconstrued in, in in admitting to any kind of reflection like that. If anything, there's a reality of of this record is that it was being made at exactly the same time we were rehearsing for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot shows. Oh, yeah. You know, we were re- we were rehearsing for those shows in between takes for making this record. So we were playing Yankee Hotel Foxtrot as close to that record as we could in the studio and then recording Cruel Country. So there's a a certain amount of nostalgia that's baked into that atmosphere when you're, you know, listening. We actually would pull up the record and listen to it and which like, which synthesizer is that? Like, like, let's let's dig it out. So actually some of the sounds on this record are sounds from Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Hmm. Like there's organ, there's a synthesizer patch that I made for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot that sounds like an organ that's sort of catching fire. Uh, <laughs> that's all over this record. And it's because we had dug out that keyboard and we're started like, you know, starting to prepare for these shows in New York and Chicago. But I'm only interested in nostalgia in the sense that you can get somebody to come to you to listen to it in a nostalgic way and then maybe hopefully subvert that and get them to understand that the past keeps changing too. The past isn't going to stay static any more than 
the future is. And there's still things to learn about the past and there's still things to understand better about the past. And it's almost as inexhaustible as the future. It's interesting to hear you talk about the the relationship between uh, Cruel Country and those Yankee Hotel Foxtrot things because, and I appreciate what you were just saying about the past and the future, but there's a part in on the new record, uh, I believe it's on Falling Apart Right Now, it's a, it's a chorus because I'm going to be the only one falling apart right now. And the, your delivery reminded me a lot of I'm the man who loves you. Like that <laughs> same sort of like I'm the only me. Like yeah. the, the narrative <laughs> voice you're employing is like so adamant, if you will. And I was like, oh, that's like the same spirit. So sorry, I don't mean to conflate the two things based on what you just said. No. But – do you see where I'm coming from? They're both, from? Like, ro- both rooted in Doug Psalm, probably somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah. Now, I there's something you said there that I wanted to get to. Oh, yeah, your songwriting. Uh, I mentioned this book. <laughs> you mentioned I mentioned how to write one song, and there's a particular song on the new record uh, that I wanted to ask you about because it's "Bird Without a Tail," base of my skull. Because every time it plays, I think of your book because I think it's a really exhilaratingly unique. A lyrical approach for you or for anyone uh, as an exploration of songwriting. Does that song stick out for you in any way, like in terms of what you usually do? Well, it does because there's a chapter in my books that advocates stealing, <laughs> I think. And those lyrics are, are anonymously written from the 15th century. Oh, I didn't, I know, like, I didn't I, know that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I took this anonymous poem that, I thought that would be like important to have some reference to before there was a United States, before there was a country called the United States. There's a, and there's another, po- there's another poem on the record that I repurposed a lot more than I didn't hardly rewrite any of the lyrics for, for without a tale. And it's not called that the poem is, I think the poem is called there was a man with a, with double deed or something like that. I'm not sure what the t- the actual title is or if it even has a title. Well, what I, but there's an Edgar Allan I was just gonna, I didn't mean to cut you off, Jeff. I was just going to say you were going to say something about Edgar Allan Poe. So let me let, I just wanted to all I wanted to say is it's the structure of it. It's not simply mm-hmm. the wordplay. It's your choices you make as a song as a singer, frankly, to just phrase mm-hmm. this in a in a torrent with very mm-hmm. like there's not like a verse chorus verse sort of structure to it even though you you accomplish that maybe with how you're singing. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just for those listening. No, I think I think I think that that's what was interesting to me about this poem is because it is a, it's not I don't think it's a poem that was just came this just came out of nowhere and somebody just made up this form. I think it was a form that other people used to remember things. There was a man with the double deed sowed his garden full of seed. Then you say when the seed began to grow it was a garden full of snow. When the snow began to melt, so it becomes like this ladder to like keep building on and you could do it forever. And it's a really amazing mnemonic. Those lyrics are really easy to remember because they have this little kernel of the next line within the line preceding it. That to me, I think like, I thought the music should reflect that the music should never just turn back. Yeah. It just goes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It just, they should just keep going as like, it's building towards something. And in this case, it builds towards death. <laughs> well, you've and then yeah, it, yeah, it does do that. <laughs> <laughs> you've written a lot about death over the years, and it's 
impacted me philosophically on, on some levels, uh, various levels. You have a lot of fun with death uh, on this record in one particular song, A Lifetime to Find. Do you find yourself laughing at death more? I'm sorry I've made this so death heavy. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's my fault. I mean, you would, <laughs> if I had my, we weren't talking about my record, we'd probably be in a good mood. Or... No, it's a, it's a great record, but I do think, like I, I was trying to say, this is a bright spot. Like I find that song sort of funny. Personally, do you have your is your opinion or has your opinion on death changed, Jeff? No, that's not what I meant to say. <laughs> I still, you're still against it. I believe you were against it. No, I'm still. I don't like it. <laughs> nope, I'm not, not into it. Has your um, perspective on death changed? Uh, because it it death is invoked a lot here. And uh, we've talked about it already, like as an abstraction, like people die, people. I don't know who they are. I don't know if I'm supposed to care. Yeah. But what do you, what about you? Like, uh, is your is your uh, perspective? What? I mean, that song that song's from a tradition of songs too. That you know, like "Oh Death," it's uh, you know, I think most famously, people probably have been exposed exposed to that song in "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou." I have a version of it that I grew up listening to by Lloyd Chandler that was on a rounder records or folkways record of uh, songs from North Carolina Hills or something. And I've really always been really fascinating to me to that people, I mean, I feel really connected to people across centuries when you hear art that they made that reflects this fear of the unknown and this wrestling with an attempt to master their fear with art of something that scares them, you know, death in this case, but there's all, there are all kinds of songs like that are, are, are in that vein. And I think horror movies are kind of in that vein. It's a way to, you know, sort of master our fear in a safe place for things that are like the worst thing we can imagine, you know, like, well, let's go and like, let's go endure them and we'll be okay. And, but, but yeah, there's this, this conversation type song that, that has been written over and over and over again between when somebody as at the moment they're being called by death, <laughs> they, their numbers come up. Yeah. And it's one of the, I think it's one of the first songs I wrote during the pandemic, you know, just thinking, Oh, this looks, this is probably like the kind of thing that would be happening that would make somebody go sit in, in a, uh, a cabin and write a song about death or, you know, have a conversation with it and try and talk some sense into death or something, you know. Yeah, it is a conversational song. And uh, I believe one of the lines is like, oh, death, I can feel you in my chest, right? Which reminded me, it thought yeah. it made me think of the early days of, of the early days of coronavirus when uh, that's, yeah. we were really focused on that. Uh, it's going to yeah. take our breath away. So, yeah, it's uh again I I you you address death a lot. Um I've come to terms with the fact that the pandemic gave me pause to think, wait, isn't everything we do to stave off despair and the notion that we're going to die? Like almost everything. Right. We work, we do all these things. I think we know we're going to die. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm paraphrasing your own lyrics. Uh so mm. I think uh I I understand why it's fodder for songs and country music and other forms. It's just something we can all uh, acknowledge is going to happen to us, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody's, you know, it sounds really simplistic, but I don't, I don't know how much more there is to it other than everybody's just struggling to find a way to have more good days than bad days. Yeah. 
and we all kind of try and figure out different things that make us feel like we're having more good days than bad days. And, and it isn't easy, you know, but I'm like, I'm, I'm proud of very, I'm very proud of one lyric in that song because it, it kind of sums up maybe part of the reason I'm obsessed with this topic. And I'm not the only one that's obsessed with it. And I'm certainly not the only artist that's made it a, made it somewhat of an obsession to, to mm-hmm. introspect. But um, at the end of the song, death says, Oh, Jeff, don't obsess. It's the best that I can do to help you see the light and help the light to see you. It's true. There was a truth. It was you and only you ever knew, you know, to me, I was like really, really felt moved that, that those words came to me and made sense to of something that I had struggled to make sense of. And that is, I mean, I've known that, that the idea that we're going to not be here someday is a great motivation to 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 do something yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know like if like when life was endless i always you know it's usually an impossible thought experiment to think of like what would you even be bothered to do right right <laughs> if there was no um nothing looming on the horizon that that signaled that this wasn't gonna last forever what what, what would motivate us hmm. and i just think that 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 lyric was my a kinder way of saying that to myself you know and I also like the idea that we don't always choose to see the light. Sometimes the light sees us. And, and we don't like thinking of it that way. Mm-hmm. We don't like thinking that we don't have control over that. But there is a randomness to our good fortune. <laughs> you know, there is a randomness to our situations what we find ourselves in and we really, really have a almost impossible time contemplating randomness and not knowing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think things do. I was saying this to my wife today. Things kind of do work out for me when I was fretting about something and then something shifted. I'm like, things kind of work out and they, and you really have to let go Mm -hmm. of controlling everything. And I have those, I know I have those issues (laughs) and this has really crystallized that. I, I found it interesting that you were like, I was proud and pleased that these lyrics came to me. Again, I alluded to this book, How to Write One Song. Mm-hmm. This is among the first Wilco. Is this the first Wilco record to come out since you published this book? I feel like it is. Maybe. Uh, Love is the up. King came out, but that was a solo. Yeah, the solo record came solo out. Solo records are notwithstanding. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help it. I, I really thought of this book a lot more as I was pouring over the lyric sheet and listening mm. to how you your word choices, frankly, mm. just out of curiosity, has anything about um, your approach to? So- oh, sorry. For those who don't know about the book, Jeff uh, regales us with uh, <laughs> <laughs> stories about um, writing exercises and ways of writing. As he mentioned earlier, stealing <laughs> part of the book. No, it's really fascinating to just have you go through your process. Have you abandoned any of these? practices or added new ones since the publication of this book? And if so, is any of that reflected on this new record? I mean, I don't really, I mean, I don't tend to do the the word ladders nearly as much as I used to, maybe because I kind of did them as a practice for so long that I think my mind seems like it's always kind of storing up some of these odd associations and Mm -hmm. I don't get, I don't, I don't know. 
I don't feel like I need to go looking for them as much through a process as they, huh. they, it's like, I feel pretty good that the words are kind of coming to me. I like use those things, you know, not necessarily for writer's block, but more, more when I'm feeling a little bit less inspired, I guess, you know, just like um, it's a way to get inspired is to kind of like go through a process and start to see how your brain just can't help but make connections when you start putting words next to each other. And mm-hmm. the, the book itself isn't really, a, isn't really about learning how to write one song. It's, it's like more <laughs> about, it's more like be, just taking my platform or, or my, my experience in the world and advocating for creativity just as, as a general rule. It's like, I, if I like sum up that book in the simplest way, it would be just like, I just want people to have permission to make stuff. <laughs> no, abs- absolutely. Yeah. I, I, that's the spirit in which I took it. I, I think mm-hmm. anyone from any field, it is a, <laughs> I never think of you as a motivational speaker, although sometimes your banter is very motivational, if I may say, <laughs> but it, it did have that spirit to it. Like, I'm sure it was the seed was planted as people were like, how do you write a song? How do you do that? Right. And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to tell everyone at once and write this book. Mm -hmm. Does that probably some motivation there? No, I think it was like, I mean, I've been unabashed about like the craft of songwriting my whole life. I don't like, I don't have any problem with admitting that I bought, like I've bought, rhyming dictionaries i've looked at other books on songwriting i've I, i've tried to absorb the the information that is out there to 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 gather and it's there's not very much good information from a philosophical standpoint about writing songs and creativity in general in my opinion mm. the books on songwriting tend to be either one uh, of two things they tend to be either how to get your songs published you know like with are are recorded by somebody they're more about the business side of songwriting or there are books about songwriting that kind of dwell a little bit more in the musical theory side of how to construct melodies or how to come up with chord progressions and things like that which i don't spend a whole lot of time on at all in my book yeah i wrote the book more as a desire to have had a book growing up that expanded my concept of what a song could be that expanded my idea of what it is actually that I'm getting out of writing a song, what reward there actually is for it other than success (laughs) or, or, uh, or, or recording contract or what reward there is. I mean, Cause I just think that that has been way more beneficial to me in my life than almost than anything that's happened to me career wise yeah. is the, 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 just the, the good fortune of having found something that I love to do that takes me so far away from, from myself. And so deep inside of myself simultaneously yeah. to where like, I feel like I grow uh, a soul or I grow a spirit. I have a spirit that that I discover and only through this one act of thing, something I do, but maybe other people find it through prayer or through meditation or through uh, different things that you can do, but they all have to be things that take you out of time that take you somewhere other than the space that you occupy in your body with your ego in charge. <laughs> right. So as you contemplate the songs you you've written and wrote rather for cruel country, do you have any new, or I guess even just based on what you were saying, and I know this is a 
a heavily used term. So I'm going to invoke therapeutic because <laughs> yeah. I'm just curious. Like, do you, after you, after you, it's interesting to me that you said that you don't do those word ladders anymore because I do think sometimes when I, when you finish something, when you write a book like this, it's kind of out of your system and your body mm-hmm. and your brain just evolve. You move past it. And I know you are in a weird spot as a songwriter because you'll write a song and release a song in 2002 that uh, evokes feelings you had at the time, but then you have to sing it for the rest of your life, which is sort of weird. <laughs> I don't have to. No, you don't have to. But oh, yes, you do. Your fans demand it. But <laughs> the fans always get what they want. No, my, my point is you're just constantly like, I'm sure you must have songs where the emotion, like the original core emotion was very powerful. And you've got to kind of relive it over and over again. Anyway, sorry. This, you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, but it's probably part of how I would ever come to the conclusion that the past isn't the past. Yes. <laughs> you know, the past doesn't stop changing. And that's probably in some part through that experience of having my songs that theoretically should be moving along with time in the same direction, all like never varying from you know, their origin, but they do. They feel prescient sometimes. They feel like completely wrong (laughs) to who I am sometimes, but in a way that's interesting and fascinating to sing Mm. because I don't have to be who I was to sing a song to somebody. They change in the way that people react to them. I can complete the circuit for somebody that like, by singing Jesus, et cetera, for the you know, 50,000th time or something like that. Yeah. And it may not be moving me at that moment, but seeing it move somebody else puts it in that present, you know? You know, it's interesting you brought up Jesus, et cetera, and prescience. You remember this. So uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot mm-hmm. comes out 2002 after 9-11, and people thought it was like a oh. They were. They seemed to be singing about something like stuff that happened during nine eleven, which was odd. But it, it brings me to my latest theory that I've been throwing at everyone who'll be on my show, which is that I think uh-huh. uh, musicians are often uh, uh, prescience is often foisted upon songwriters and poets and whatnot uh, because they'll say a thing and then something happens and then people go back to what they said, or rather, sometimes in your case, the record comes out after, and then people are trying to mm-hmm. make sense of something recent. So they go, oh my God, they were onto something. <laughs> my theory is that artists are are uh, maybe a little more dialed into reality than the general public. <laughs> and so they're picking up on stuff, whatever, subconsciously, whatever, and they're writing it down or they're conveying it in a song. And then uh, in some sort of weird sci-fi trick, it comes true or it becomes <laughs> more apparent to everyone else because they, they mm-hmm. don't give the... Maybe their life or my life doesn't offer me the opportunity to sit down and kind of convey those feelings and thoughts because my life or most mm-hmm. lives are just a blur. But the artist can kind of have that moment of I'm working on something. I'm trying to talk about the mm-hmm. human experience. So what I'm getting at is I'm not saying soothsaying, but it's sort of like it is prescience, but it's something else. I just think they're maybe tapped into something more underground that isn't prevalent. Does any of that make any sense? Is that, is that wild? Well, as, as, as much as I would love to agree with the, that seems like I'm almost, you know, somewhat exalted idea of something that artists do. Mm. 
are capable of. And I'm not discounting your theory at all that maybe there's like, there's, there's a dis, there, but, 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 you know, I mean, most people I know that write songs, make art are pretty em- empathetic. They spend a lot of time thinking about the, the world. They spend a lot of time in solitude. They spend, you know, there, there are potentially things that might tune them into certain wavelengths that we're not all paying attention to all the time. Having said all that, I think the much more believable explanation for that than anything else is the fact that artists actually put all of those thoughts out into the world and therefore have a bigger pool of things to choose from for bias confirmation about Hmm. how, you know, I don't have much evidence. Well, actually, I mean, your show is based on conversation and it has, you know, it's not, it's not that open to interpretation. The conversation is what the conversation is. A song is just musical, just music alone could seem prescient. Yeah. You know, like without any words, you could make something and it's so subjective that somebody in a completely raw, heartbroken state could say, oh my God, how did they see that this was going to happen You know, to me? And everybody, unfortunately, has been going through a lot of periods recently a lot of those same type of feelings the feelings that we associate with being in a breakup or like it's like this like this heartbroken state yeah this feeling of betrayal this you know sort of sadness about the state of the world yeah and and then in that state especially when people turn to art to turn the radio on turn anywhere they're likely to find something that feels meaningful yeah, no, and that, and yeah, I mean, it's because you need it because you absolutely need it. And our, our brains are meaning seeking like machines, pattern seeking machines. We just want that to make sense. And God, it would feel so good to just know that some of us have the ability to kind of feel it before it happens. If you're dialed into the human condition, you might be a little, you could potentially be a little bit ahead of your time is maybe where I'm coming from. Like you might be mm-hmm. onto things that people just don't have the time to think about. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate what you're saying in terms of deferring it as too exalted. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, I maintain there's some, I didn't put it forward maybe in the most cogent way, but there's, it's clumsy, but I think my theory has legs. It's stumbling about. Well, let's, let's, let's do a little thought experiment. Sure. There's also the, the fact that people value art that has some root in trauma. Mm. that has that is introspecting or examining a sad feeling examining heartache examining a lot of the art that we revere and think of as being more valuable than other art is the art that has taken the time to kind of explain that to ourselves or or make ourselves feel at least seen in those feelings so let's look at art that doesn't do that Nobody's going to listen to Love Shack by the B-52s and think, oh, my God, how did they know that I was going to have a Love Shack at some point? <laughs> no, like this totally priest. They did. How did they know about bouncy castles? There's no way that they didn't even exist in that in that era. You know, fair. Yeah. I don't I know think, what I'm getting at. I'm just know, saying that I those think, that those those feelings don't get it. They don't get examined. They just not. It's not as important. It's not as much as much a part of the the need of or the function that it well, provides. I, it's interesting because I think we, 
I see what you're getting at. When someone deals with something that has a cheery exterior, you're not going to think too much about it. Overthink it, maybe. <laughs> right. Right. Whereas if something is framed to you as being about pain, you mm-hmm. want to try... Again, negative bias. I think it's true. Our brains yeah. just go to the, okay, well, that's deep and meaningful. This is trite because it's not dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. Even though, who knows why the person needs a love shack? Maybe they had their heart broke. That's probably why they want a love shack. They went through a, a, a rough breakup. Uh, maybe this is the wrong reading of Love Shack. I'm sorry. I think the Love Shack only exists for for fun and for, <laughs> <laughs> for, for there to be for there to be a moment where you're free of burden. <laughs> yeah, I think I I agree. Uh, I want to get back to this last question about the uh, cruel country. What I was getting at is as you as you've finished writing the songs and contemplate them. Do you have any new or therapeutic, I guess is the word I was looking for, perspectives on America, your place in America, its place in the world? Because I feel like as I go through the lyrics, there is this sense of place, how we relate mm-hmm. to other people around the world. You have a song, mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing one of your songs right now about people all across the world. But do you have any feelings about America as we're speaking today, uh, which is uh, June 1st, 2022. Do you have any feelings <laughs> about it, uh, having written this batch of songs? Or, or rather, uh, feelings that have changed you or altered you or your perspective on you, your country, where it's at right now? I mean, I really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm miserable at how, uh, about how little talent there seems to be for communication and our leaders and and the world to me would be a better place if we were able to have discussions that weren't around rhetoric and were like there was like some situation where we could get back to some idea of there being a future worth striving for you know an, an agreed upon commitment to making things better as a, and fixing problems. I don't feel like there is a time in our history w- I would prefer to go back to because I think there is nostalgia on the left and the right, and neither one of them seems to be picturing the past accurately, and certainly not for everyone. You know, we act like this is new. It's nothing new. None of it is new. None of the rancor, none of the divisions are new. None of it is new. Um, what is new to me is the complicating nature of social media and the climate of how we communicate, making it almost impossible to hear each other. That's new. I think that here's let me, well, I'm sorry. You have something to say? No, I'm no. Do I look? I look like I'm being rude and wanting to talk, but I'm actually no, I'm no, listening. no, no. I'm, 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 I'm just deeply. <laughs> no, I'm trying I'm, to ponder I'm, I'm, what you're saying. I'm wanting a life. I'm wanting a life. Ra- I'm like, why don't you throw me a, a life? Well, okay, I, I but, will because uh, this was striking that you said you kept saying how things weren't new. That this mm-hmm. is so. What you're saying is like we're in a cycle. And I, I was today reading the press release about the reissue for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Uh, when's that coming out again, Jeff? Sorry, I didn't read the press release closely enough. Apparently. September, sometime in September. So I, okay, sure. so in September, on the Nonsuch uh, site today, I was reading it. 
and just in the context of pondering the songs on Cruel Country. And there's a passage that quotes repeat guest on this show, Bob Mayer, mm-hmm. uh, who's been on three or four times to talk about the replacements. Uh, he wrote the liners for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Is this correct? Yes. The, the reissue, I mean. So mm-hmm. I just want to read something to you. Quote, conceptually, Tweedy had decided to focus on a big idea for the next album, the state of America. His lyrics, often distilled from scribbled pages of free verse or poetry, become a form of inquiry, Mayer says. Tweedy said in 2004, I wanted to write about the stuff right in front of my eyes, microscopically looking at America and asking questions about each little thing. How can there be all these good things and things that I love about America alongside all these things that I'm ashamed of? And that was an internal question, too. I think I felt that way about myself, end quote. All I'm getting at is <laughs> this seems very similar to what the context is for this record. Oh, I don't think it's anything. I mean, I listened like when we played a set at Solid Sound the first night we played Cruel Country in its entirety. And it was the first time, maybe the only time we'll ever play it in one set. And then the next night we put together a set with, you know, from all the different records in our career. And there were so many songs that we were playing when I was thinking, oh, this would have fit in on Cruel Country. If I ever was a child or I don't know, just like it's not an I mean, it's an underlying obsession, possibly. Well, I think it speaks to your it speaks to you and your consistency as an artist and a person, a person, Mm -hmm. a person who thinks about things a certain way. Like I, that's what stuck out for me more than. Like, obviously, it. I think where I'm, why I just broached it just now is because I think it speaks to what you're saying. Like, this is just a cycle of behavior that has clearly mm-hmm. influenced, like, sorry, the the environment you're in has not really changed exactly mm-hmm. in 20 years. Like, the things you're concerned about and thinking about are the same. About I, don't think, America. I, don't th- I don't think they've changed in my lifetime, to be honest. Right, I think right. that. 67, 68, the Democratic National Convention, you know, like the, the divisions are like my the, my only experience of this country have been around these specific divisions, race divisions where I grew up. I grew up next to East St. Louis, Illinois, which was one of the most impoverished communities in North America in a solidly you know, working class, lower middle class factory town that basically looked at its police force as a border patrol with our neighboring community of East St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So like I grew up in the belly of that, that conflict and it's troubled me my whole life. It really makes me very, very, very sad. I think it's, it's, it's just, it's so dumb. (laughs) <laughs> so it's maddeningly dumb. And the thing that at the same time is as few as furious as I get at the at the simplicity of the problem. And I, I, it also gives me hope because the answers are so unbelievably clear. And to me and to everyone, I think if everyone honestly, I think there are lots of people on the other side that understand the answers just as well as I do. Mm. And it's not like these are problems 
there are many, many problems that this country has. There are many problems that are everywhere in the world that you live, every, every, every society has p- political problems and, and cultural problems and things that they need to figure out and solve and do better. But some problems are just so clear how simple they would be to fix that I, I just can't allow myself to believe that they won't be fixed. I, appreciate I just don't see how that center holds forever that you just can den- deny the answer. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to, I appreciate your optimism, but like, I don't know what it would take for your country to change like objectively as a Canadian. And I'm, we're not great here either, yes. but we mm-hmm. don't have as much access to horrible shit mm-hmm. um, that you, your folks do. And uh, we are still reconciling our own mm-hmm. history of racism and bigotry. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. so we have a lot of work to do. So I'm not saying this from any yeah. exalted, to well, use your earlier word, point of view, but I've asked this of a couple people uh, before. Uh, Steve Albini once told me he had his eye on New Zealand <laughs> as a place as a place to live, but he doesn't know what the hell he'd do down, down in New Zealand. Do you ever get to the point, Jeff, where you're like, I can't, what are we doing? Like, where could, what, why are we living here? Like, do do, do you ever get that low? Um, I've been, I'm, I've been everywhere, like most places, not everywhere, but I've been a lot of places and I haven't really gone anywhere where there aren't historical problems. Uh, I haven't gone anywhere any places where I can't picture some of the problems that have, we have arising if they aren't there now, I feel like a position in a position of privilege in this country as a successful white man, I should be able to move forward with at least enough, as much courage in my love and my convictions as I've witnessed in people that don't have that privilege and don't have that status. And this country has become better for most of the changes that have made this country better have been through the courage, like just unbelievable courage of people that didn't have what I have. So for me to bail to, it seems very cowardly. And, and I always think my kids think that, that that would be like the worst thing in the world to do is like is to no, leave I, our commu- leave our community and and leave basically the people that we could potentially help behind uh and save our own asses or something like that and i don't believe steve for a second i know steve pretty no, well i don't no. think i don't think he would ever do that either and I, i'm not i mean we do what we can but yeah you know the, the the specific thing i was talking about is the idea of gun control in this country you know people think yeah that, i that, thought that, so i thought that's yeah, what you're that, talking about. that's yeah. one thing that's one issue i mean Racism isn't unique to the United States. It's problematic all over the world. It's reported on with more prevalent, like it's a complicated situation from my perspective, because the more you talk to marginalized people in Canada or they write their books, you read about stuff the media doesn't cover here. They just haven't mm-hmm. decided to to cover it. And on the one hand, that's erasure, but on the other, then I watch CNN and it feels 
like it's sensationalism. However, it's the truth. It's very confusing. Like, I think you're more hyper aware of your differences based on how the media chooses to. Sorry, I keep saying the media like a <laughs> idiot, but you know what I mean? Like you're, yeah. I feel like you live, if you pay attention to your news cycles, you're going to be hyper aware of the difference that is being foisted upon you as people. Whereas I think this record, a lot of it to me is about how we're all kind of the same wherever we are. Yeah. That's simplistic maybe, but it does try mm-hmm. to humanize the experience of living on this planet mm-hmm. as a shared experience. So this is, this is maybe why I say, talk to me. I don't want to hear poetry. I want to hear it, say, say it plain the way you really speak. The lyric you quoted earlier, because I, I just don't know how anybody knows anything. And and the thing that only thing that I can use to calibrate myself and keep myself coming back to some sense of optimism and some sense of humanity is to center myself back in the idea that I don't know everything. I don't know very much. And I'm not the person people are looking to to solve problems on a global scale. What my responsibility is, is to my community and 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 refocus myself on what I'm actually capable of doing. And some of that is like very feeble. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just like it's making songs, making making something beautiful, putting it out in the world. I consider that among the things that I can do. Well, I I would I fully agree. I don't think fleeing one's community. I think actually, yes, strengthening and bolstering your community, specifically like your community where you live. Mm-hmm. That's the first step. It's mm-hmm. why I people used to make fun of me for uh, uh, having uh, local uh, sponsors on this podcast, <laughs> yeah. or I always do a thing where I, I suggest to people that they support a couple of organizations. And my hope is that someone listening to that in Louisiana isn't like, why would I donate to that Alberta organization that helps uh, black women? Mm-hmm. My hope is that they'll be like, "Oh, I have an organization like that in my community, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna I'm gonna support that because of this guy's stupid podcast made me think to do that." That's your hope is that you make little incremental mm-hmm. change, but it spreads. Mm-hmm. You have this platform where I think you're doing that, but you get to tour mm-hmm. the world, yeah, and your music reaches outside mm-hmm. of your community. So, well, just wait- wanted to. <laughs> salute you for that <laughs> oh. well everywhere we go we do like we approach uh tour poster proceeds go to a local charity we try and consider the band as a citizen of every individual city we we travel to not exactly for the what you're saying not that we like we're going to come roll through town and solve all your problems yeah yeah it, yeah it means something to have those communities or those those organizations acknowledged and they also like remind the people that actually live in those communities that they exist, you know, yeah, <laughs> in some, in yeah. some cases, but, but um, yeah, I'm very, very opinionated about a lot of things um, in terms of what I, what I, how the wish I wish the world would be. Yes. But having grown up in a family with people that I f- would absolutely hate if they weren't my family just based on some of their convictions and their beliefs growing up. Yeah. I, I feel compelled to maintain some space for evolution, you know, for, for uh, 
some sort of uh, epiphany or some sort of, you know, moment. And actually, to be honest, that comes from experience, too, because I saw it happen with my dad. I saw my dad become a different person in the years before he died. And some of it was he worked on the railroad his whole life and he fucking hated Donald Trump. And you want to know why he hated Donald Trump? Donald Trump was the boss's kid that Donald Trump oh. was in the, like, and he was, my dad was so smart. He couldn't go to the local bar anymore because they were playing Fox news. And he, he couldn't take the way it was radicalizing some people in his neighborhood, you know? And so he leaned on me a lot more than he ever did his entire life. He became more connected to me as like a life raft of somebody saying, I see what you see, dad, you know? Mm -hmm. And this was not a man that you would have agreed with in many arguments about anything regarding the topics we're talking about when I was growing up. But the epiphany for him was Donald Trump saying, calling Mexicans rapists, and and demonizing people that were coming to this country. My dad called me crying, saying that he would have crawled across the desert with me on his back if it was what he had to do to take care of me. And I believe him, but it was a moment of empathy where he was actually, it's just like, just hit him that that's what we're talking about. Those are the people we're talking about and calling these names. And so I always like that, that, that probably does, does give me a distorted sense of hope because not everybody is going to have that moment of empathy, that clear, clear moral moment, but it it exists and it it can happen. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, I um, appreciate this conversation. Uh, This is uh, much longer than I usually go with anyone. Um, I, I hope apologize. No, talk no, too much. <laughs> no, I do too. I had lots of ideas, and I've listened to your record on a loop in the house uh, with my children and my my wife, and it's been a wonderful. Uh, I just mm-hmm. wanted to quasi apologize if I've kept you too long, um, oh. but I feel like it's been enjoyable. <laughs> that's, Absolutely, that's my read. Even if you, even if you don't get a candy gram from me. <laughs> afterwards now you're i just want the, you to know i've really enjoyed i've really enjoyed this speech. i probably shouldn't have invoked all of the stuff i invoked <laughs> i just i i'm being i'm being raw and honest about it because that's it, it just means the world to me when it's you know what let's not revisit it you've i think you're the same it means a lot to you to hear from someone that engages sure. with your work in a positive way indifference is worse than almost anything else i guess is the moral of the story indifference feels like what happened oh. He had no reaction. The worst worst review you can possibly get is three letters. Meh. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, (laughs) I'm fine. I have, I'm very fine. It's so thrilling to have a guest like you on the show. I I don't care what else happens after this. This was fun and and interesting to me. Now, uh, before we go, I did mention Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Is there, and, and that's coming up in the fall. We obviously talked about this new record, Cruel Country, that's out now. Is there anything? Is there anything about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or anything else you want to talk about in terms of upcoming stuff that people should know about? And within that, where would you like? I assume willgoworld.com is where you go. Is that the yeah. yeah yeah yeah? But is there anything you want to talk about in terms of upcoming stuff or or this very elaborate Yankee Hotel mm-hmm. Foxtrot box set? I would like to address some of the things I saw about the rollout of that box set oh please do um i saw some people blaming us for the vinyl shortage 
because there's an 11 <laughs> disc box set. And I just wanted to let everybody know that we've been in line for 20 years for that. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I appreciate that. Yeah. Ever since it gets, <laughs> that is a, that's a reflex that's occurring. I'm seeing it more and more, uh, among yeah. uh, artists and fans saying like, what the hell, mm. uh, what do you have a take on it? Like, I know I get it. I see where you're coming from, but, uh, yeah, I guess that was a hot topic. What's your take on that? Oh, it's a drag. It's a drag for everybody. I mean, yeah. but um, in all seriousness, that record has been, it's been being planned for at least three or four years. So oh, okay. it's not like we jumped <laughs> the line okay. and said, hey, let's press up a, like 11 record box set out of the blue. Yeah. We've been in the queue for a long, probably for longer than almost anybody. <laughs> is it done? Is it uh, like this is the other thing I keep seeing is people. Well, it's happening less. I think people are learning not to announce before they physically mm. have the thing because there's yeah. all these delays. Do you guys have the thing now? Is it done? I, I mean, the record is sequenced. All the mastering is done. All of that. I'm not sure where the production, the actual manufacturing stands to be honest, okay. I, I mean, I don't have a copy of it, but that's not uncom- that's not unusual. <laughs> <laughs> in ter- I, I think people can read about uh, all the stuff that's on it um, in terms of the extras. There's a lot of extra stuff. Obviously, it's 11 records. For you, are there particular highlights or revelations that, that you're excited about sharing? Because it's a very yeah. process-oriented collection from what I've read. Uh, really taking people through the journey of the the, the yeah. making of those songs, but is there something you're really particularly excited about sharing with that thing? Yeah, there's a the version of Ashes of American Flags that was going to be on the record, which we had to remix at the last minute. There's a Stravinsky piece that goes through the entirety of it from Symphony of Psalms. At the time. I was listening to and educating myself on modern composition and things like that because it's just a world that it was very alien to me and exciting to try and piece together what its movements were and you know and who the major players were and things like that. So I was listening to some Stravinsky and thinking, my God, this is what I want to do, but I don't have the vocabulary or the training to do this. And I took the track in because I knew it was in the same key. And I asked Jim O'Rourke, I was like, I, I would like for this to be on this song, something like this. How is how do we get this to work? And I said, can we just like put this over it and just see if it works? Um, just see if, it, you know, just see if, if it gives you any ideas of some arrangement we could do or something like that. And we ended up loving just having this almost like a Charles Ives thing. There's two completely different, there's the track, of ashes of American flags. And there's the Stravinsky portion going over the entirety of it. And it lines up in all of these incredible places and has this, uh, this conversation between the two pieces. It's just miraculous to me. And then we couldn't get clearance for the, from the Stravinsky estate. And then we finally got clearance for this box set. So I'm really excited to finally get to share that with everyone. Well, I appreciate that insight. I didn't know about about this, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that as well. That's great. So, yeah, as far as you can tell, that's out in September. I'm sorry, I don't have that information at the ready, but uh, I'll link to everything on the in the podcast description. People can go to Wilco's website. Uh, tour dates and stuff coming up too, right? 
Sounds right. <laughs> Prob- probably. Yeah, you Prob- guys have been fairly fairly busy, I feel yeah. like. Uh, no, we, we definitely have some dates coming up, and we have some dates uh, in Canada, I'm pretty sure. But I, I would yeah. be hard-pressed to put them out there accurately. No, and I didn't uh, expect you to. Uh, I, I uh, Again, I'll link to everything. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much all that info. If we can go out on a song from Cruel Country... Uh, I wonder if you can pick one for us, Jeff, and also uh, tell us why you chose it. Uh, I think maybe um, I would go with Country Song Upside Down just because um, it's a live take. It, the whole thing is live with the band, and it's it's so lush and beautiful to me that we can all point ourselves in that direction and 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 make something like that as a band. Real quick, and I nothing's real quick with you and me, uh, but uh, <laughs> real quick, because I wanted to ask about it, and I got lost in all our other conversations. So Wilco reconvened after some time apart to make this record, right? I don't know how long, how far, how long it had been before you all were in the same room. Do you remember? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we had done some touring, uh, yeah. you know, tours that have, were basically all makeup touring from... Mm previous scheduled tours that had kept getting pushed back because of the, the pandemic and, and yeah. rescheduled. And, but it probably been about two years, almost okay. exactly between, oh, wow. okay. yeah. Between us getting to be in the same studio space together recording. Do you ever, uh, and that's, uh, that's an unusually long time I, I would guess for the band to be apart. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's, that's probably the longest did you ever, did you have any feeling of like, uh, anytime you take a break and come back, do you ever think, uh, oh, are we still going to be able to do it? Do we still got it? Do you ever <laughs> have that just moment of like, oh, what's this going to be like? We haven't done this in usually probably five months, but now two years. Did you, cause I feel the joy in you guys, the fact mm. that you chose to record this way live mm. off the floor suggests a sort of communal celebration. Let's be in the rooms together. No baffles, no nothing. Uh, right. For the most part, so it feels celebratory in that regard. But do you have a second of like, all right, we got to get used to each other again? Is it how's this going to work? So I, no, I, I mean, I mean, I know the feeling you're talking about. Maybe when I was younger, I used to feel like it was a burden to start to have so many songs to keep in my head. You know, when we started making more and more records, maybe around the fourth or fifth record, I started being fearful that 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 was just too much for my mind to keep mm-hmm. that repertoire of songs going all the time. And that if we stopped touring too long, I would forget how to play everything and maybe even forget how to play my instrument. Mm-hmm. And, and that never happened. And, and over time, I think I started letting go of those fears and having a lot more confidence in the, in the ability for it to come back. And at this point, I think this band, that's one of the reasons it's joyous is it, it is like riding a bike. There is a, there's a familiarity with each other, even after a long break, it is a family. Mm-hmm. It has the conversational ease that a, that a good friend has after not seeing them for a long time. You don't have to catch up on everything. You just automatically start feeling like you did when you last saw that person. And I'm like that with my sister. I'm sure you have people in your life that you're like that with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not one of those situations where you have to go, why were we friends? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty clear why we like being together and, and, it, and 
it comes back really fast. It's nice to hear because it's uh, certainly uh, I've been so fortunate when I lived in Ontario. Now I live in Alberta, but in Ontario, I would see Wilco all the time, every time mm-hmm. I could, and uh, always really meaningful to me. It's it's really one of the greatest bands I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I did a count. I've seen three billion bands, so I'm comparing it to that. Oh, yeah. So I, I want to thank you for being uh, in Wilco and for uh, continuing <laughs> to make these great uh, records and books and all this stuff you do, Jeff. It's just a, it's a wondrous, it's a wonderful life you've led, <laughs> and I, I'm pleased to be uh, peripherally involved. Uh, so yes, without further ado, because I'm just rambling here like a like a weirdo, I want to play yeah. you all a new song by Wilco called "Country Song Upside Down" from their beautiful and majestic new record, "Cruel Country." Jeff Tweedy, thank you so much for being back on the show and for giving me any time, let alone all this oh. all this time. Thank you so much. I, I it means the world. Thank you, Vish. Honestly, really wonderful time. I'm really uh, I feel lucky I get to talk about this stuff with anybody, and especially somebody as as thoughtful and and. Um, I don't know, willing to just go there with me. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you. Down a country song like a trout dying sky water rainbow flickering out inside a dark cabin the more moonlight. I become rounding all of my edges some weight it can't be some
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, thanks once again to Jeff Tweedy for being back on this show to talk about Wilco. And, uh, you know, I can't be objective. I feel like I was a little too... Uh, uh, emo and open about some of my insecurity, <laughs> insecurities. But whatever, I think uh, you talk to Jeff, and that's what happens. You both get open. Anyway, I apologize. Actually, I bet people listening can tell me if this was any more open and insecure than I normally sound. But anyway, I, I really enjoyed this chat. Uh, you learn from uh, expressing your insecurity, I hope. I feel like uh, I did. Anyway, thank you so much again, Jeff for being back on the show, this time for the 692nd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it everywhere, you're turning over rocks, you're like, where is it? I don't know where it is. Or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, everything you need should be uh, on my website there, vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on Facebook or Follow the show on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at Vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation uh, to sustain this podcast. All the work that I put into this thing, uh, this is uh, the Patreon's the primary source of uh, revenue for any of it. And it's uh, modest, but I'm very proud of all of the work and I'm very proud pleased and overwhelmed with the the gratitude from people like you who listen and take time out of your day to go to the patreon.com slash creative control and make a flexible monthly donation it's really really kind i won't lie to you some days it's it keeps me it really keeps me going and uh it's encouragement and i appreciate it uh six dollars or more a month grants you access to exclusive content uh that some of it's derived from these these current and new interviews some of it i grab from my audio archives uh, from the interviews I've uh, done preceding the launch of this podcast. So please consider supporting the show. And if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon and I will get you on while supplies last and just as soon as is humanly possible. Patreon.com slash Creative Control for more info. Thanks again to the fine Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, which is located in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta. You can learn more about them and uh, order stuff at blackbird.ca. Also want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my good buddy Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on this show. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you for listening to this uh, episode with Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you consider subscribing to the podcast or following it. 
and telling your friends all about it and spreading the word about it. It means a lot. Thank you. I enjoyed this one. It means a lot to me. I hope you enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com